The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are entrepreneurs and business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're also giving back to the community, and so can you. Welcome to Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking to make the most of yourself and your business, then you will want to stay tuned for the next hour. Here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm delighted to join you again for yet another week. And today we're going to talk about uh, alternative organizations and changing the perceptions of business with Professor Martin Parker. And before I introduce Martin, I'd like to say a thank you to Patrick Rettig, who joined me on the show last week to talk about turnaround. Uh, I really admire Patrick for his ideas, his energy, his enthusiasm, and how he's absolutely true to himself. Um, afterwards, we chatted for quite a while, and he showed me over, his, over Skype his office at home on a mountain in the Californian desert, which is actually one big boy's playroom. I can imagine meeting him and not wanting to leave that room with Ducati motorbikes, a stage and musical instruments for rock nights, a huge train set that weaves around a track suspending from the ceiling. And I thought, this is a guy who you know, once had nothing and now flies himself to work in one of his airplanes and is a real inspiration. And uh, he really demonstrated as in his own words that if he can turn his life around, so can you, well, if you need to. Uh, so from one business expert who's truly himself to another, I'm delighted today to welcome you to uh, Professor and introduce you, Martin Parker, who's a Professor of Organization and Culture at the University of Leicester School of Management. And yet again, um, Martin might be a university professor, but meet him and he's another, you know, another fascinating and successful individual who chooses to be himself. There's a theme here. I met Martin and I instantly warmed to him with his friendly, relaxed approach. Um, he wears a business suit, a flamboyant shirt uh, and an earring. He's also a drummer and he kindly forgave me for liking rock music and I forgave him for liking punk. Um, Martin <laughs> has held posts at Staffordshire, Keele and Warwick Universities. And he has a background in anthropology, sociology, and cultural studies. From 2008 to 12, he was joint editor-in-chief of the journal Organization, the Critical Journal of Organization, Theory and Society. Um, his literary works include Alternative Business, Outlaws, Crime and Culture, and he's co-written the companion to Alternative Organization and, and also Key Concepts in Critical Management Studies. And at the moment... He's working on various topics in culture and organization. He's into secret societies, spies and detectives, and tower cranes, which is quite interesting, as well as a book on Daniel Defoe, and he's, uh, and he's writing a book on the Bank of England with Valerie Hamilton of Zero Books. So what can we learn from alternative businesses, such as outlaws and criminal gangs, when it comes to doing business today? I'm fascinated to understand why can we admire and Love films about charismatic villains while mistrusting organisations, bosses and political leaders. And as this interview takes place today, where the results of the UK general election have taken place, it's very topical. What can this teach us about the way we should do business today? 
So what can we take from alternative businesses? Alternative people like Robin Hood that can enhance good business practice. So a big welcome to uh, Professor Martin Parker. Thank you very much. Nice to, uh, nice to be here, Chris. Uh, great, great to talk to you, Martin. And um, uh, Can I call you Martin or do I need to say Professor? <laughs> you can call me Martin. <laughs> or Sir. Sounds very grand. Sir, that's, uh, that's good as well. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about what your life was like when you were growing up, Martin, and what led you towards academia and an interest in these alternative organisations and culture? Well, my dad was an academic, so I followed the family business, really. Um, my dad uh, taught adults uh, geography and politics, um, and I never intended to become an academic, uh, but I just sort of drifted into it in a way, because I found it was the kind of stuff that I was well, I was reasonably good at, I suppose. Um, and I've always enjoyed just the freedom that being an academic offers you, really. It's like a big playground. Um, in which you're you're given the opportunity to explore pretty much anything that interests you, and then you know to make your case in writing or speaking, whatever else, or why other people should be interested in that stuff too. So for me, it's it's the kind of the most freeing, the most exciting job you could have. If I if I wasn't paid to do this stuff, I'd do it anyway, Chris. <laughs> well, that's uh, that sounds uh, great. That's, that's really interesting what you're saying there about you know, that freedom to to study all sorts of uh, things. Uh, so, what, so when you sort of finished at university, uh, you, you actually didn't ever want to leave. Well, that's not completely true. <laughs> I think I spent a little while um, trying to pretend, uh, probably as I, as I was going through my useless, useful rebellion phase, uh, trying to kind of push myself away from university, really. Uh, worked in a factory for a bit and various other things. And then um, uh, I did a master's degree in sociology uh, in London um, and ended up being absolutely fascinated doing all the, you know, reading this. And I was just reading everything on the reading list. And I was just so obsessed with it that um, some of the other students came up to me once and asked me to stop asking so many questions because they wanted to go home. So <laughs> I'd really kind of discovered my um, my vocation, I suppose, you know, and and... Well, I always think that if you're doing something that you enjoy so much, it doesn't feel like work. So, you know, I work quite hard at what I do. I spend lots of time doing it. But because because it's pleasure too, it never feels that onerous. It never feels like I'm working huge amounts of time. It just feels like I'm, I'm being me. I'm expressing myself. You know, I get paid to write weird books on strange things. That's, that's an incredible privilege. It certainly is. It certainly is. There's a really good, you know, message in there for people as well. If uh, you're struggling to find what your kind of passion is, you know, what 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 are you doing when you're at your most happiest? Uh, yeah. When it comes yeah. to, uh, how can you maybe turn that into into work? That's right. I mean, I, I think it's 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 difficult to to well, or rather, maybe you know, you're lucky if you find yourself in that kind of position. There is also a downside, of course, isn't there, in the sense that you can self-exploit a lot so you know I do work an enormous amount and my partner and perhaps my children too I don't know sometimes resents the amount of time that I spend doing what I do so there are you know there's there's no boundaries to it in in some sense so you can um you you can end up working extraordinarily hard and kind of not realizing it yeah yes I think that's very true you've got to got to try and manage the balance haven't you 
Uh, yeah. So well, my problem is I'm not even very good at going on holiday because if I go on holiday, I have to take the laptop and always set myself some kind of writing project. And then, you know, I end up kind of sneaking away whilst on holiday just to kind of spend a couple of, t- a couple of hours on the laptop, which uh, whilst my family say, where's dad? Where's he gone? <laughs> He's out there working again. <laughs> now I know. I know. While you're kind of uh, on holiday and you're on, on the laptop and things, you've you've acquired this real interest in in alternative organisations. And you know, I, I, what do you, what do you mean by an alternative organisation? Yes. Yeah, so I think I probably mean it in two different senses. So in one sense, I'm interested in organisations that present us with different sorts of business models. So thinking about things like cooperatives, worker-owned organizations, different forms of currency and finance and so on. Um, a variety of ways in which we can imagine some of the conventional capitalist models being uh, changed by different through different power relations and different organizational circumstances. But I'm also interested in alternatives in the sense of looking at different things from within the business school, because it seems to me that very often the business school looks at a very orthodox set of organizations. So to give you an example, a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece about the traveling circus and it was a serious academic piece, but it's, I, I found that very few people from within business schools had actually written about circuses. Mm. And that struck me as kind of odd in the sense that the business of circuses is a serious business. It's an old business. It's one that involves some really interesting logistical and uh, human resource problems uh, and is also suffused with a certain kind of magic. So I ended up writing this piece about circuses and it makes a number of points about theories of organisation, mobility and various other things. But what I was left with was a sense that, you know, maybe there's lots of other organisations that we could learn from, but that we don't look at because somehow they're not part of the conventional curriculum within the business school. I think if that uh, the point that you make about circus is is very interesting because I think uh, I, I completely agree. I've I, I not read a lot about circuses until uh, Cirque du Soleil came yes. about, and what they really did is they they kind of revolutionised the circus, didn't they? And there's I think there's a lot you can learn from that. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And the, and the circus also presents us with some really interesting problems in terms of the idea of organisations and space. Most of the time when we think about organizations in the sort of classical business school mode, we're thinking about organizations that are located in one or many spaces. And those locations are clear. And so the resources and the people implications are simply about collecting all that stuff in the same time and space. And of course, the circus is one of the first, an army would be another example, but the first, first circus is one of the early examples of a commercial um, a, a, a commercial traveling organization that quite literally had to uh, pick itself up by its bootstraps, move everything that it needed to somewhere else, stay there for a couple of days, and then move on. And some of the large um, US circuses were gigantic things, absolutely enormous, with you know hundreds of train wagons, thousands of employees, enormously complicated feats in logistics. And then you know within 12 hours, they would have packed up leaving nothing left but, as the saying went, nothing left but wagon tracks and popcorn sacks. 
I remember I went to the, if you've ever been to, to I went to the Buffalo Bill Museum in Wyoming, right. which was great. But I remember the, you know, just sort of learning about the story of Buffalo Bill and the sort of traveling, traveling right. circus. And they came over, they came over to the UK and, yeah. uh, and, you know, there was some huge, you know, the huge logistical things now, but in the, in that time, in Victorian times, it was, uh, Probably, you know, quite a big thing, really. Enormously complicated, and quite a lot of the commentary on circuses from the Victorians does stress this sort of idea of people's wonder at the sheer complexity of the coordination that was required. Again, I suppose the general point isn't so much for me about the circus specifically. It's about the idea that from within the business school, we should look at a much wider range of organisations, many different examples, like. For example, a recent essay that I've just finished on the secret society. So secret societies uh, sound like they are mm, a bit silly, perhaps. You know, a bunch of kind of rather odd, usually middle-aged white people wearing gowns and uh, perhaps intoning certain sorts of sacred symbols or whatever it might be. Um, but actually they raise, when you start to read about them, they raise all sorts of interesting questions about secrecy within conventional organisations. Because many conventional organisations like to claim that they're transparent and so on. But of course they can't be, really. There are many reasons why you're, um, it, it, from a, in a whole series of different ways, conventional organisations need to keep secrets, need to have parts of organisations that are secret, both externally but also from other parts of that organisation. So, you know, the most obvious terms, when the senior management team are developing the, you know, whatever it is, the five-year plan or something like that, they won't necessarily be sharing that with all their competitors. So there's a whole series of ways in which secrecy, I think, then becomes a way of understanding what organisation means. I think that's a that's a that's a great great point because that's something it's something I've experienced in senior management roles in companies and something I'm very involved in now, where you know, there has to be a degree of secrecy. Yeah. However, sometimes it's it's kind of a it goes and feel it can feel a little bit uncomfortable against the culture is actually to be open and transparent. Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've held management positions within universities now, and you know, the first thing that you find when you occupy those kind of positions is that you know things that other people don't know, and many of the things that you know are things that would be difficult or damaging to reveal. Some of them are personal secrets that other people that people have told you, different confidences and so on, but also strategic stuff about the organization, which necessarily means that you're put in quite an awkward position, I think. You know, it's it's all very well talking about transparency as if that were a kind of an ultimate goal. But in practical terms that's that's not always possible. No, I think kind of thinking uh, with that, I'm not actually, you know, being in the the world of uh, speaking and things like that. I've not actually ever come across anybody talking about that as a subject, you know, that that the art of secrecy in organisations, it's yes. a bit like, it's, yeah. it's a bit like, a, you know, it's an unsaid truth. Yes, yes. Again, I think, I mean, part of my point here is that by looking at unusual alternative types of organisation, we might well come up with some interesting lessons that we learn. And if we only ever look at, big conventional organisations, they're kind of the staple of research in business schools, then we're only going to learn some fairly conventional lessons, right? Yeah. You know, see, the the objects of our inquiry are going to teach us different kinds of things. Well, I think the, the, the you know, the point of, uh, you know, we talked about circuses and then Cirque du Soleil and got me, you got me thinking about that through, 
the the conversation and, and yes the complexity and the logistics but also the you know the the talents of the people and the way they work together as a team and yes. actually if they don't work together well you're going to get injuries and then how they they engage their audiences and bring them into the experience yes yes that's right exactly yeah and also some really intriguing marketing problems for early circuses so you know this is when the the circus is traveling around the states for example and you want to alert the people in Wyoming that the circus is coming, then you're sending kind of advanced marketing parties in order to alert them to that. But there's lots of circuses. So what we see is an enormous amount of competition over marketing your circus, your circus even to the extent of actually over-postering other people's posters or tearing down other people's posters and so on. So it, it presents all sorts of intriguing problems, which, which are ones that you wouldn't really think about if you only imagined organisations as being in one place, M placed. Mm. I can imagine during this political election, there may have been one or two occasions where one party's posters got uh, covered up another. <laughs> well, I'm sure, and various people who might have been leafleting and pulling leaflets out just as they were putting theirs in. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I mean, we've only got a couple of minutes now to commercial break, but I mean, one of the people that you kind of studied is Robin Hood. That's right. I mean, what, what can you learn from Robin Hood? When it yeah. comes to organisation, yeah. you think? Well, well I, as you said, we'll talk about this a bit more after the break. But I mean, Robin Hood is almost like the archetypal, um, the archetypal outlaw who steals from the rich and gives to the poor, and that kind of opened up, uh, opens up, I think, a whole way of thinking about business practice because the the inheritors of Robin Hood are very often, to put it very brutally, <clears throat> excuse me, the kind of people traffickers who've been. Uh, taking people from uh, North Africa to, uh, to to southern Southern Europe, so the kind of rather um, unorthodox and very often extremely distasteful forms of business activity are nonetheless rooted in expectations about marketing, about reward, about motivation, and we might not like the context very much, but they tell us rather a lot about the way that business operates. Mm. And, and I suppose with. Uh... <laughs> With things that are done that way, which are criminal, but have to be done undercover, um, then you know the actual planning of them, I guess, is you know is very detailed. Indeed, it is. That's right. Yes, the business problems too, mm. though distasteful ones. Yes, we're going to go to commercial break now. But after the break, uh, we're going to have a. I'm interested in sort of exploring things as to why some of these you know unsavoury characters, people in modern. Uh, history and uh, and you know are very liked and people are attracted to them so you know in the movies for example why is it some of these distasteful characters uh, people uh, are fascinated and uh, want to watch and in some cases you know admire so we'll, we'll move into some of that um, a little bit after the break as well but we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. 
Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need, exactly when you need it, so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper, and if uh, you do um, want to find out more about these shows and my take on them and things, there's, uh, subscribe to the newsletter at chriscooper.co.uk, uh, which we send out just once a month, and uh, we'll give you uh, lots of links and let you know what's coming up and, uh, uh, and share some of the key um, outtakes from some of these interviews. Um, but we're talk- I'm talking with Professor Martin Parker. We're talking about alternative organizations, and we've been chatting about the circus, about, uh, about uh, Robin Hood, um, and... Uh, and also, um, you know, I know you sort of draw from, in some of your examples, in you know, people like the pirates and and also the mafia as being interesting. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, what that's can right. we learn from pirates? Yes. So I, I need to kind of explain the context for this a bit. I think so. So I've been interested for a long while, now, twenty years or so, in the way that business and management is represented in popular culture, particularly in films because the representations very often of managers are extremely negative. Uh, very often managers are the source of the problems. They're the ones who make the evil robots or you know, make people do things they don't want to do, whatever it might be. I think you know, the easiest way to make somebody into a, a bad guy is to make them a chief executive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started watching 10 years ago the Pirates of the Caribbean films, um, and I, in, the, in the, the first one of those, I was, I was immediately, I thought, you know, great film, really enjoying it and the rest of it. But I was immediately starting to think, well, this is actually a description of a particular kind of business activity. But it's a business activity that's really glamorized, that lots of people seem to think um, is, is, is exciting, that um, is somehow noble. Yeah? And, and then I started to watch, say, for example, uh, a TV show like The Sopranos about the Mafia. And you have a very similar sense that, you know, this is a show about uh, illicit business activity and, you know, people get killed and stuff like that. Um, but somehow it's, it's sexy and attractive and interesting. 
So the contrast between the portrayal of the kind of criminal business and the orthodox business seemed to me really interesting. The orthodox business being represented as somehow evil or boring or stupid or whatever it might be, whilst the illicit business was the one that was being represented as sexy and exciting. It was that was the one that we identified with, if you like. Mm. So it was from that that I then started to spin on to, to looking at the history of outcalls, really, as we said before the break. You know, it's kind of beginning with Robin Hood and then thinking about the idea of the noble outlaw as it moves through the centuries, through highwaymen and pirates and smugglers and so on, or, or Western outlaws in, in the USA, right the way to, through to kind of 20th century bank heists and bank robbers and all the rest of it. That this whole theme actually tells us something about the legitimacy of business activity. And very paradoxically as well, tells us something, I think, about the entrepreneur, about the idea of the kind of self-made person, the possibility to stand outside an organisation and still be something, still make something. Mm. So it's a bit, um, what was, what are you saying there that we, we often um, admire outliers for maybe taking the risk of standing outside a convention? I think that's right. I mean, obviously, I can only speak for myself in terms of, what, how we might respond when we watch, say, for example, a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. But for myself, as a sort of, you know, a white man of a certain age, then, you know, I very much identify with the Captain Jack figure. He's someone who I would like to be, someone with a certain sort of swagger, an insolence, a refusal to bow the knee to authority, you know, a set of characteristics that I would like to think I exemplify. <laughs> I clearly don't. I'm just a dull bureaucrat in a large organisation. But nonetheless, I'd like to be Captain Jack. And I think that very often when we're watching these kinds of movies and films and TV shows and all the rest of them, that, that, that we're identifying with characters who are breaking the law, very often doing some extraordinarily violent things. You know, Tony Soprano kills people all the time. But nonetheless, they almost seem like more authentic, more colourful, more three-dimensional, perhaps, than the lives, the work lives that we very often live and experience. This may sort of explain why you know some people are attracted to, to gangs uh, and those sorts of things, as opposed to going down traditional. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. So a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the sociology that's been done on on gangs. Uh, suggests that, you know, particularly in poor neighbourhoods and all the rest of it, that the gangs are providing not only economic activities, which are far superior to the economic activities that other, otherwise those people would have, but also providing a kind of status and glamour, which would not otherwise be accessible. There's a particularly nice book on gang organisation in the um, uh, in Chicago from about 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, many of the people who are involved in this kind of activity have very few other opportunities. You know, they might go and work in a 7-Eleven and not get very, paid very much, or they might join a gang, sell some drugs, do something very, very exciting and get a lot of respect. Yes. So it's, it's entirely comprehensible in human terms, I think, that, that we should have a kind of pull towards the outlaw, to, to the idea of a certain sort of authenticity which is denied to us most of the time in our daily lives. I think I was, I was recommended by a friend to watch a serial called Breaking Bad, which was, a, yes. was about a, a chemistry teacher with terminal cancer who makes crystal meths with a junkie. And I, right. and I kind of sat there watching it, sort of confused by it, thinking, you know, why am I rooting for people who should be locked up? <laughs> um, and 
I don't know why that is. It's there's something in us, isn't there? That yeah, well, that's right. which probably yeah. explains you know why these serial these programs are made and why you know movie executives are so fascinated with these alternative organisations and characters. We've exactly, that's right. So I mean, a couple of comments on that. I mean, one of the one of one of one of the things I think is the case is that something like a quarter of the output of Hollywood in the twentieth century was concerned with illicit activity in various ways. Some of the earliest films were about train robberies, for example. And we see, you know, an endless series of films about pirates and smugglers and highwaymen and criminals and heists and all the rest of it. You know, it's, it's a kind of an absolutely central part of Hollywood representations of everyday life. And that's interesting in itself, isn't it? That that, that, that stuff sells. That's what people go and look at. The second thing, I suppose, about this is, is something about the way in which, um, how can I put this, the way in which the outlaw seems to represent a sort of a more authentic, a more real way of being. Yeah? So in the sort of 800 years or so since Robin Hood, what we can see is a continual reiteration of this sort of idea that those people who are involved in criminal activity are sometimes noble outlaws, that they are in some way morally better than real businessmen or the cops that are trying to lock them up or the judges that are condemning them or whatever it might be. It's a bit like, you know, going back to the Robin Hood example, the, 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 of course the Sheriff of Nottingham and his acolytes are corrupt. Yeah, they don't represent the voice of, of real people or of real authority. And so that's why Robin then becomes legitimate, because the power that exists is somehow unjust. And we see that kind of theme echoed all the way through this stuff. So, you know, recent ones, say, say for example, we take the kind of Ocean's Eleven, Twelve franchise. What makes those groups of characters attractive, apart from sharp suits and great music, is the fact that they're almost always stealing from people who seem like they deserve to get stolen yes. from. Yes. Yeah? Bad casinos, for example, that kind of stuff. So they're very often in heist movies, for example, you know, it'll be some sort of fat dowager who has been rude to a waiter or something like that. And we know she's bad and she gets her pearls stolen, but that's okay because we didn't like her in much in the first place. So there's a kind of moral balancing going on in much of this stuff in which, you know, the, the good, in a sense, lies with those people outside the law. And the law itself, authority, business, judges, courts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is then positioned as being somehow a problem, being corrupt. Uh, and I think uh, I just what I'm sitting here thinking about right now is, you know, for people who may be listening and, and they're sitting, they're working, working in an organisation, is, you know, the employees are going to be, you know, having dreaming of being pirates, <laughs> potentially watching, you know, Ocean's Eleven and Twelve and. Uh, and various things for escapism. Um, obviously, you know, criminal activity in in companies is uh, completely unacceptable. Um, but other ways that in an organisation, for example, that you know you can have introduced a bit more sort of escapism to engage your staff more and create a, a more engaging place, an exciting place to work. Almost certainly, but I don't think it's just about. The, the sort of the excitement that the employee might experience if they bend the rules a bit. Um, I think it's kind of, it's a sort of about more than that. I, I, what what, what I, I believe is that one of the things that these kind of 
criminal organizations show us is something about the inflexibility of many conventional organizations, but also about the sort of moral problems that they very often involve. So, you know, again, it goes without saying we condemn criminality and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, think about um, many of the sort of cases that we might have on, you know, business ethics courses or something like that, and, you know, issues to do with corporate social responsibility and so on. Many of those questions encourage us to think hard about the dividing line between good and bad, yeah? because the dividing line between good and bad isn't a stable one. You know, it's not as simple as a question of obeying the law of the organization or obeying the law of the land. It's very often a difficult balancing of personal obligations and desires with what are the explicit rules that are uh, deemed to be necessary by an organization or state. So it seems to me it raises that whole question of legitimacy, of what's good and what's bad. There's a wonderful bit, for example, in one of the Sopranos shows, I can't remember it is, where Tony Soprano is in downtown Manhattan, looking up at one of the you know corporate office buildings and so on, and he says, you know, it's not, it's not me that's the criminal, it's those people in the office blocks. They're the ones that are the problems. And this, you know, whatever we think about the kind of the moral economy of that, there's an important point there, I think, in which we shouldn't be too, how can I put this, we shouldn't be too pious about the idea that we sit on the side of good with the white hats and then there's, there's some other people over there who do bad who somehow are breaking the law or immoral or something like that because I don't think the world's that simple. Hi, so you're still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Sorry, now I thought we I was just concerned I'd lost you for a moment. No, no, no. <laughs> I think it was I, an abrupt end to the sentence. That was all I think. <laughs> I think I think the world I think you're right. I think the world isn't always always that uh, that simple. Um and you got me thinking of a, interesting of a few organizations who seem to have the approach today of of kind of acting first and then apologizing later. Yeah. Not quite following the you know the letter of the law or the letter of what would normally have been seen as being reasonable and they've grown very quick mm. um which is, which is which is interesting yeah. uh, just, I, just 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 to kind of busk on that a bit more i mean one of the things that we mentioned right at the start was my my sense of just how lucky i am to work at a university because of the freedom it gives me and there's a genuine freedom there and it's a freedom that many employees don't have i think so i can write about pirates and angels and uh, circuses and all the rest of it without any particular worry that I'm going to get told off by anybody. It's um, Some of it might go badly wrong and some of it might not, but I need to kind of to be able to explore and make mistakes in order to be successful at what I do. I think that many organisations fail to understand just how important that kind of freedom is because it's all very well talking about empowerment and entrepreneurship and all that kind of stuff. But in practice, it's the rules of the organization that are usually dominant and the kind of um, the sort of spaces that are allowed to employees to explore and possibly to produce really interesting ideas or products or innovate in various ways are highly restricted. So, you know, we could suggest that a rather more piratical approach by organizations could actually encourage them to do more interesting things. At the same time, of course, I know that many organizations are going to be very hostile to this because you know, they have their business model and they have their rules and regulations. And so it's very difficult for them to 
allow employees or managers the kind of freedoms that, say, an university professor might have. I, th I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's. I think people in organisations also can get quite stifled. You know, coming up with with ideas, but then you know, people they report into saying, "Oh no, we tried that before; it doesn't work." And, and you can you can soon get so you feel restricted uh, and, and actually unable to speak out. Uh, uh, so because you, you're speaking against the natural order, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I, th I mean, I think there's a big disincentive in organisations to looking stupid. Yeah. Yeah. And in order to, you know, in order to be like Jack Sparrow, you have to be prepared to be a bit stupid. You have to be prepared to make mistakes, and sometimes you're going to fall on your ass as well, aren't you? Um, but that's that's kind of one of the necessary dangers of giving people freedom. And I do worry that that within uh, the organi contemporary organisational world, that the forms of empowerment that, are, that employees are given are kind of so small scale and so meaningless that they, they often don't allow people to fail um, and consequently don't allow people to succeed and do really interesting things either. I think, I think you, you're right. I think there's an expectation as well. I see this when I'm working with organisations in that you know, I can have me coach somebody who's actually in a real tangle and they've maybe just had 360-degree feedback from people in their organisation and everybody's telling them to... Uh, that they should be something different, which actually, if you if you met all of those individuals, what they're saying, you should be more like me. Mm -hmm. So there's everybody giving you feedback who's saying that you should be more like me, <laughs> mm -hmm. and actually, you 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 are yourself. And there are, there, there are areas that if you were uh, allowed to focus on more, you would absolutely be in your flow. And areas that uh, probably sit within your job description where you've got to massively raise your energy to do. Um, yes, that's true. Remember, though, that much of the time when we're talking about the outlaw, outlaw we're talking about an individual, and it's usually an individual who is, you know, who can jump on a horse or um, or, 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 or or sail away to sea, whatever it might be. There's a there's a kind of an embodiment of freedom in that. But most of us in our our working lives, we're always going to be more constrained. We're always going to have a set of rules and regulations, even within the university. You know, I mean. Uh, in terms of my writing and stuff, that's fine. I can do pretty much what I want. But if I'm talking about teaching students in particular sorts of ways or giving certain sorts of marks or turning up to exams and all the rest of it, there's a very tight set of rules that constrains me um, and my students in that sort of area of our activity. So there is a kind of trade-off, I think. There's always a trade-off between the um, coercions of an organisation which allow us to do big things collectively and the sorts of freedoms that individuals seem to allow to uh, are, are kind of in, encouraged in some senses to believe in, if you if you um, take the story of the outcome. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. I think you know, some of the structures in organisations like line managers and appraisals and, and meetings and, uh, and what have you, actually they provide a structure that enable people to perform. And if you give, give them complete freedom, then they often you can focus in on what they like rather than what needs to be done. Um, so you're right, it's a balance, isn't it? It is, and it's a kind of theoretical balance too, isn't it? Because you know, my, my background's in sociology, so I kind of understand the ways in which collective forms of association allow us to do stuff that we couldn't otherwise do. You know, individual, an individual couldn't build pyramids. It's complex forms of coordination that allow us to do that. But at the same time, there's then always a trade-off between that and some notion of individual freedom, and particularly, of course, in 
in the global north, ideas about individual freedom are very often prized. And there's something of a paradox there that we've got both the strongest forms of association and organization, but also probably the most powerful articulations of individual freedom. Mm. We're going to go to commercial break now. Uh, We'll be back with you in just a a couple of minutes and uh, we'll be uh, chatting more about this and, and understanding maybe why businesses are portrayed as bad in movies, what can we do about it, those sorts of things. So we'll be back uh, with you again in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, host of the Costa Report every Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. My guest this week was special counsel to President Clinton and served on the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board under Bush. Lanny Davis will be here to talk about a national debt which has climbed from $10 trillion to $18 trillion and will reach $20 trillion by the next election. Don't miss Lanny Davis this Tuesday at 6 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with uh, Sir Martin Parker. <laughs> the, professor, out, <laughs> the professor of organization and culture at the University of Leicester School of Management. We're talking about alternative organizations. And uh, I, I just uh, wonder, you know, we, we mentioned, uh, I mentioned earlier at the beginning, I talked about Patrick, and I, I talked about you a little bit in the same sort of vein in terms of, you know, being an individual character and you've got you've sort of freedom, I think, in the university to express your personality and the kind of way you are, the way you look. Um, do you think organizations should embrace that more? Well, yeah, I would say that, though, wouldn't I? Um, I work for a largely bureaucratic organization, but I occupy a position that allows me to be relatively free, relatively autonomous in the way that I 
think about my research and my writing. Um, there are other organizations that have similar kinds of relationships with their employees. For example, I don't know, an ad agency and the creatives or something mm. like that, or a, perhaps a hospital and their doctors. But I'm not sure that we can sort of say generally to all organizations that all their employees should be like pirates or something. You know, it's not going to work, but simply because the organization is necessarily defined as a set of rules which are more or less repeated in time and space. That's how we know that something's an organization. So if everybody was breaking all the rules all the time, then definitionally it wouldn't be an organization anymore. It would be very difficult to recognize it as an organization at all. That being said, I do think very often organizations over control. Um, it does strike me, you know, that there's so many examples of this, aren't there, where bureaucracy simply extends itself into domains that it doesn't really need to. This isn't, by the way, just me sort of saying bureaucracy is bad or wrong, because I think bureaucracy is necessary in most organizations. You know, we need to have sets of rules which define where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing and what our relationships with our clients or customers might be and all the rest of it, yeah? So organizations are sets of rules. But at the same time, we don't need to extend those rules into areas where personal freedoms, personal ways in which individuals express themselves are somehow crushed. Organizations don't need to control everything, in other words. As a little example, this morning with my nine-year-old son, he he'd lost one of his shoes um it actually turned out to be my wife's car and she was at work um but he was in a dreadful state because he was going to school and he wasn't allowed to not wear the school shoes and his only alternatives were were trainers right and he could see the sort of tension in him and, and how upset he was at nine because he he felt he had to conform uh when actually he had some other shoes that didn't look far off school shoes but he was going to get into trouble and it, yeah. it, it, it sort of made me think about you know, organizations and sometimes whether you know where that line is really between the the need for conformity uh and uh sometimes unnecessary control that's right but we can imagine different sorts of organizations which would require different levels of that can't we so if you work in uh let's say a bank um it's relatively important that you keep on repeating the same kind of uh, processes and systems reliably into the future. So I'm not sure I necessarily want in the central processes of a bank huge amounts of innovation. Yeah, I just want them to carry on doing the same stuff well and not dropping any clangers. Or, but if you thought about, say, I mentioned this before, but say an advertising agency before, then presumably you want advertising agencies to be much more creative and not necessarily to be hidebound by what they did last week or last year, and instead be thinking about something new. So we can imagine organizations almost being on a kind of a scale of how much, how innovative you want them to be. Again, going back to that sort of idea of the, the problem of bureaucracy, and to a certain extent the problem of management too, is that I think many people, ordinary people, perceive management as being obsessed with control. Yeah. Always, always trying to make us ordinary people do things that we don't really need to do. And that backfires all the time. You know, if managers get the, um, get the image of being people who are obsessed, control freaks, you know, people who are obsessed with making sure that everything's in the right place at the right time, then employees will simply kick back against that. They won't um, understand the legitimacy of those sorts of rules and are much less likely to follow them, you know. 
Now, we, we, when, when um, we were sort of chatting for this interview, we were talking about you know businesses on the whole being portrayed very badly in movies, and I'm thinking about kind of the film Wall Street, Gordon Gecko, James Bond fighting against corrupt organisations, and, and even you know even in the movie The Matrix, you know the, Neo's office, work office, when he goes, is completely and utterly dull and boring. That's right. <laughs> and I wonder. You know, why is business portrayed so badly? It is universally portrayed badly, isn't it? And, and it always surprises me. When I'm teaching about this kind of stuff, sometimes I ask my students to give me examples of organisations that are portrayed as healthy, satisfying, interesting places to be. And it's so difficult for them to do that. I mean, there, are, there, are, there are a vanishingly small number of examples where the work organisation is seen to be a good thing within a movie. It's usually somewhere that needs to be escaped from. Um, it's the source of problems rather than the solution to problems. Now, in terms of explaining that, well, the explanations aren't very nice, really, are they? Because we'd have to start off with the idea that the reason that filmmakers produce uh, stories like this is because they know that it'll sell. And so that suggests then that the vast majority of people who go to movies share those sorts of assumptions about, about managers, about bosses, and perhaps about their own workplaces as well. So if anything, the kind of negative portrayal of um, management and business in movies encourages us to get on our game a bit more because it seems fairly clear that as a diagnosis it suggests that the vast majority of people think managers are <laughs> either either corrupt and evil or just idiots yeah well i think uh, you know it's interesting looking at kind of statistics as to why people leave their jobs and you know the number one is that people don't tend to leave their jobs they tend to leave their boss quite often um so uh that's right. And I do think it's something that, that um, well, from my own point of view, the business school, but I guess management and business thinkers more generally do need to confront because there is a danger otherwise of kind of almost sort of living in a very self-referential kind of looking glass world in which everybody tells each other how fabulous they are, whilst many, I would say, the majority of employees and ordinary people don't share that view of management and business. There's almost a kind of schizophrenia here, isn't there? Where you know, if you look at, I don't know, the uh, say management today or something like that, one of the business max, and then compare that with the kind of movies that are on in the film theatre, and it's as if you're talking in different worlds. Yeah. Yes. De definitely. And there's a certain sort of insularity then with management thinkers who don't fully engage with the degree of scepticism and distrust that many people have towards bosses and managers. Mm. I, I noticed, I'm just sort of intrigued, intrigued with this sort of scenario. I, this, one of the insurance companies in the UK, Direct Line, they're currently using Pulp Fiction's Winston Wolfe, um, who's the actor Harvey Keitel. Yes, and they're using him to assure middle-class homeowners that a replacement for their stolen TVs and bikes will be sent within eight hours rather than right. him... Uh, you know, typically in his film dealing with blood splattered cars, That's um, right. and I thought this was quite interesting in light of our conversation. Um, it was prompted by by this interview when I saw this because uh, you know is this being is this the case because you know the, these mafia like villain type stereotypes are seen cool um, because I kind of question whether this is 
right because I I'm not sure I actually trust the, that company any anymore. <laughs> was, I'm not sure I actually trusted them that much before, to be honest. But yeah. um, I do use them. Uh, yes. But you know, is this a wise thing that people use these types of characters to promote? Yeah. I don't know. It's it, it's it's a real paradox, isn't it? I mean, there's a strange thing about my fascination with all of these sort of rather um, unsavoury characters is, of course, that they are, you know, if I actually met a pirate or a people smuggler or a, uh, a highwayman or something like that, then, you know, I'd, I'd cross the street to avoid them. These are clearly not nice people. And, you know, a nice middle class boy like me should not be in the same street as them. That being said, they still do have a fascination for many of us, don't they? They kind of, they seem to pull us to this idea of living a different kind of life, a different sort of way of being or something like that. Whether when direct line use you know, character from Pulp Fiction in order to sell their, uh, to sell their uh, products, I guess they're sort of surfing that strange awkwardness that lots of advertising does, yeah, in which we're often aware that we're being sold to, but as long as, as, long as it's a reasonably good laugh, we'll kind of buy it. Yeah? Mm. The, 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 the tricky thing, I think, about the uh, example of the outlaw uh, of the organised criminal in general, is that the, the the attraction to that might be a kind of envy on our part. It might be that we would rather like to be that person rather than the the, the dull person who's doing the nine to five or something. There's a there's a glamour to the outside to the possibility of. You think about a film like Goodfellas, for example. So, you know, one of the classic uh, movies. And what we see in Goodfellas is a young man gradually becoming part of this mafia organisation. And I don't know if you remember the first half an hour or so, it's basically about him wanting to be like them because they have sharp suits and nice cars and respect and all the rest of it. So it's about his kind of seduction into the world of the mafia. It all goes horribly wrong, you know in a kind of drug and alcohol crazed lunacy of death and violence. <laughs> but nonetheless, that sort of traction, that sort of attractiveness is still there, isn't it, for many of us? The idea that we might do what we want, express our freedoms in some kind of ultimate way rather than the, rather than the very constrained lives that we might live with an organisation. I've got to, look, got to sort of move on from there because we're about to we come to the end of the interview. But uh, just really, really quickly, uh, about 10 seconds or 15 seconds, do you have any final messages that you'd like to leave us with? Um, not really, Chris. I mean, just you could, I'm sure you could buy my book from the splendid bookshops close to you. Uh, but uh, beyond that, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you as well, Martin. I found it absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I'm sure you know, these kind of studies could have real positive implications for business schools and, and organisations all over to take some ideas and some inspiration from some, you know, different types of, of organisations, whether we actually approve of them or not. That's right. <laughs> so, once again, thank you, Martin. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, I'd like to also say hello to your family, who I know will uh, be sitting in the next room and listening as well. Indeed they are. And thank you for mentioning it. Thanks, Chris. So if you've if, um, got any questions or feedback on the show, please send them to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. If you want to get in touch with Martin and uh, drop him any thoughts, his email address is m.parker at le.ac.uk. Is that correct, Martin? That's right. That's the one. And I'd uh, be very pleased to hear from anybody who's been listening to the show. 
Wonderful. And on next week's show, uh, we have um, a, a, a guest of mine that I've uh, loved interviewing um, before, um, a gentleman called Jeff Ram. He's an international speaker. He's going to be talking about uh, celebrity service. So that should be our next show uh, next week. So once again, um, have a wonderful week and uh, a big thank you again to, uh, to Martin Parker. Thank you for listening to Be More, Achieve More. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, typically 4 p.m. London on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your week. Enjoy your week.